Well, I'm going to ask you to stand right where you are. And as you stand, I want you to listen real quick. What I want you to do is I want you to turn to your neighbor. Now, you may not do this, and it's okay. But what I want you to do is I want you to turn to your neighbor, and I want you to ask them what type of coffee they drink. Ask them, wait, 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 wait. I know some of you are like, some of you had too much already. (laughs) Well, what I want you to do is I just want you to take a moment, ask your neighbor what kind of coffee they drink. Now, ask them, I'm not talking about like Maxwell House or whatever. I'm asked to just say, do you drink light? Do you drink dark? You know, do you drink decaf? Whatever. So go ahead now, turn to your neighbor and ask them that. Hopefully by now you know what your neighbor drinks. Go ahead and be seated. Now comes the fun part, where I'm going to ask you what they said. So I'm going to start over in this section. And I like this new stage extension, because I can come all the way over here to this group that I never get to see when I preach sometimes. So Bob, when you asked somebody what kind of coffee they drink, what, did your, what was the response that you got? Man, you know what kind of coffee. You're no fun. Kelsey, when you asked somebody, what, what did they say? Black, just straight black coffee? Okay, great. Wonderful. I'll give you guys a break. Let's see. uh, Bryant. Bryant Long. When you asked, what did they say? Vanilla iced coffee? Vanilla flavored iced coffee? Okay. All right, now I'm going to get to this youth section. How many of you here drink coffee? All right, Chloe Richardson. What was the response when you asked that individual? If you drink decaf, it's not even worth drinking. I agree. (laughs) All right. Let's see. Rick Graziano, what was the response that you got? Strong Starbucks. Starbucks is very strong coffee. Absolutely. Well, you know, it's interesting because author and developer and researcher of emerging subcultures and the latest trends, his name is Malcolm Gladwell. Malcolm Gladwell does these amazing, interesting studies that nobody really honestly cares about, (laughs) except guys like me. (laughs) So I'm going to share some of those interesting studies. Malcolm Gladwell states that 27% of people, when surveyed, say that they like a rich, dark, hearty roast when it comes to drinking their coffee. He then follows up the statement and says, but... Majority of those people that state that, as well as others, actually like a light, milky, weakened, sugary substance called coffee. (laughs) Which seems to be the majority here. (laughs) So I went and did my own personal study by going down to Panera Bread. And I would stand back and I actually watch people, which they probably thought was kind of freaky. But I would watch people get their coffee. And if you ever go to Panera Bread, you order your drink or your meal, and then over on this other side is the area where you can get your coffee. And they have many different types. They have light roast, they have dark roast, they have a Colombian blend, you know. And so I stand back and I watch people. And it's so interesting because as I watched, 90%, not exaggerating, 90% of the people went right over to the dark roast. And they pour their dark roast in their cups. And I'm like, okay, you know, so. And then they immediately scooch down a little bit and they open up the creamer. 
Then they scooch down a little more, and they pour in the sugar. And then they walk away. And I thought, now, the reality is you really don't want a rich, dark roast. You want a milky, weak, sugary substance to drink. So why don't you just go get the light roast? But I found that interesting. Because when I watched this, and as I watched people do this, I got to thinking about this. People really don't know what they want. We think we know what we want, but we really don't know what we want. We think that we really want a rich, hearty, dark roast when it comes to our coffee, but the reality is we really want a milky, weakened, sugary coffee. So that's what we get. We put in our minds that we want that rich, dark, hearty roast, so we trick ourselves into thinking that if we pour it into our glass, it'll still remain that dark, rich, hearty roast. And even though we slip a little cream and a little sugar in there, it's still that rich, dark, hearty roast. And I found it interesting that we think that we know what we want, but we really don't know what we want. So when we come into a situation like that, we end up manufacturing stuff to facilitate our current needs or our current desires or our current wants. I think of Coca-Cola. Coca-Cola, how many are familiar with Coca-Cola? Yeah, we all are. Originally, when Coca-Cola started, it was just known as Coca-Cola. And then eventually what happened with Coca-Cola is we went from Coca-Cola over to Diet Coke because we wanted to make sure that people who were interested in living healthy and, you know, forming a diet would provide them with still with a pop-type substance, but we would call it diet. So we went to, from Diet Coke as a response to Diet Coke, we created New Coke. How many of you remember New Coke? All right. We went from New Coke after producing that to Coca-Cola Classic. Don't ask me what the difference is, just by the name. So we moved from Coca-Cola Classic over to caffeine-free Coca-Cola. And then eventually from there, we moved over to caffeine-free diet Coca-Cola. And then after that, we jumped into vanilla Coke. And then finally, we end with Coke Zero. But there's many more other Cokes. But my whole point is this, is that we originally started out with a great intention, Coca-Cola. And then over time, we had to manufacture more from that one product so that we met everybody's needs accordingly or else that we would answer that need or that desire out of our hearts at that moment. The word manufacture is pretty interesting because it actually means to concoct or fabricate from raw material. And so a lot of times we end up manufacturing a lot of things in our lives and ideas and different things like that. And when I got back to that point of thinking that, gosh, if we really don't know what we want, even though we think we know what we want, could this be the case with the New Testament church? That we think we know what we want, but the reality is we really don't know what we want. As I began to process this, I I began to think about it, and I asked myself this question, And please understand this this morning, that when I am sharing these thoughts with you this morning, this message, this is directly coming from my heart, from what God spoke to me from my heart, but what God has been dealing with me about. So when I talk about this this morning, I include myself in this. I am not separate from this, okay? So I thought to asking myself this question when I thought about it, and this is the question I came up with. Have we become a guilty party? of manufacturing our ideas of Jesus. Have we become a guilty party of manufacturing ideas of Jesus? Let me give you a good example here. 
In my right hand, I have a glass of water. This is, I guess, what you would call in the purest form of water you can get. I didn't get it from the tap. I actually got it from the igloo cooler. Okay, so this is purified water or whatever you want to say. Now, in my right hand, I have an actual venti Starbucks regular black coffee with cream and sugar. (laughs) Come on, you didn't really think I was just going to have black coffee, did you? So what I find interesting is, let's just look at it this way. Maybe this water for a moment represents Jesus Christ, the real Jesus Christ, the actual Christ who died on the cross for our sins. This represents Jesus, this pure water that we have here. But let's just say that this coffee, this processed bean, this milky, sugary substance is actually the New Testament church. You see, what happens is, is this here, this coffee, is a diluted form of this pure water. It's actually a different substance from this. So a lot of times what happens is we take this water, the purity of Christ, and we we take that venti latte or that bean and we take everything and we put it into that. We take all of our ideas and our manufactured thoughts and our opinions and our offenses and we just stuff it down into that cup and we shake it up and we add our cream and our sugar and what's sweet to us and... And then what we do is we take that around and we're like, hey, this is my Jesus. This is my Jesus. And then when when we bring people to a relationship with Jesus, we hand them this venti sides manufactured Jesus and we say, okay, here, this is what you got to do. If you want to follow Jesus, take this. And instead of giving them this simple Jesus, this pure form of Christ, we end up giving them this manufactured, pressed, sugary, weak substance that eventually will not satisfy us, only make us more thirsty. I've come to realize over the past couple months, as God's been dealing with me some things, I've come to realize that trying to fulfill all the religious obligations and ideas that I have personally formed in my mind and that I add scripture to has really worn me out and I become very exhausted. And I thought that, gosh, if I am worn out and I'm exhausted from trying to live up to these religious obligations and expectations and manufactured ideas of Jesus, then I can't imagine how many people in this community of faith must be exhausted and worn out from the same thing. See, I realize that Jesus wants to free us from our religious obligations. Jesus wants to free us from our religious obligations. You know, honestly, when I first thought of religious obligations, I thought of, you know, being freed from wearing a tie on a Sunday morning or being able to wear jeans and come into a sanctuary. Um, I thought about those things and not having to wear a suit jacket, and, you know, that was being freed from a religious obligation. But the more I thought about it, I realized that it's deeper than that. Those are just the surface things. There are deeper-seated issues in the hearts of followers of Jesus in the New Testament church that are obligations that we call ourselves and yokes and bricks that we put on ourselves to carry out every day and we expect others to live up to it. And I began to realize that really fulfilling these manufactured ideas is very weary. 
I soon realized that I was living more for the sake of the coffee, the manufactured Jesus, instead of living for the sake of the purity of the real Christ. And a little bit over time, I realized that Jesus wanted to free me from my manufactured ideas and religious obligations. Jesus wanted to free me from the manufactured Jesus that I was worshiping and that I was pressing on others. And so I want to tell you this morning that I realize that when Jesus begins to deliver us from our obligations or our manufactured views, we are then able to seize the moment. We are then able to seize the moment. The more I journey with Jesus, I begin to realize the power of a moment. See, before when I journeyed with Jesus, when I had my manufactured Jesus, I didn't have time to notice the power of the moment because I had agenda. I had things that I had to do for the kingdom. You know what those are, you know. And so I, I, um, I didn't have time to seize the moment. But the more I began to journey with Jesus and the more I began to read the Gospels, I began to see that Jesus had this amazing ability to take advantage and seize the moment that was given at that time. Great example is Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was this guy. He was a tax collector, a chief tax collector. And you may say, well, big deal, you know. Well, there was a big deal because here's Zacchaeus, this guy named Zac, who is a Jew, but he works for the Roman government. And you got to understand that the Romans and the Jews were basically arch rivals. They were big enemies. So for a Jew to go work for a Roman was considered to be, you are now the scum of the earth. You are the belly of the snake that runs on the ground, basically. And so Zacchaeus comes along and he's all excited. He wants to know. He's a little bit nosy because here's this guy named Jesus walking down the road with a group of other people, a crowd. And so Zac climbs up into a tree because he's curious. He's nosy. Let's be honest. He wants to see what's going on. And Jesus, in the midst of the crowd, not being wooed by all those around him or paying attention or dropping some great philosophical argument, Jesus stops and takes and seizes the moment and his eyes lock with Zacchaeus in that tree. Everything stops at that moment. Jesus seizes the moment and he says, hey, Zacchaeus, come down right now because we're going to go to your house and we're going to have a meal together. And the scripture goes on to say that Zacchaeus' life was transformed. And I thought, wow, when was the last time that I seized the moment where somebody's life was transformed? Jesus also demonstrates this in John chapter 4, where we're going to camp out this morning. John chapter 4, and let me set the, the, the mood for you. Jesus and his disciples leave their familiar Jewish world called Galilee. And they end up traveling to a hostile territory called Samaria. And you've got to understand, because the Jews and the Samaritans have this long, intense history of violence and mistrust with one another. So here's Jesus and the Twelve moseying on in to this high place of violence and mistrust. And we're going to pick up in John chapter 4, starting in verse 7. Soon a Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, "'Please give me a drink.'" He was alone at the time because the disciples had gone into the village to buy some food. Thirsty and tired, he sits down by a well and asks a woman for a drink. Basically what happens here, sorry, that wasn't in your scriptures there. You're probably like wondering, where is he reading that from? 
So what happens here is Jesus and the boys mosey on into town. The boys leave Jesus. Jesus is tired and thirsty, falls down by a well, and a Samaritan woman comes along. Now, you've got to understand now the context of what's going on here. You have to realize, first of all, Jesus is a proven rabbi, a teacher of the law, one who upholds the scriptures. You have this Samaritan woman who is considered to be a social misfit, scum of the earth, according to Jewish law. Jesus extends the asking and says, basically, would you give me a drink? Now, according to the religious law, it was an obligation to fulfill. That if you were asked to get a drink, then you were to give a drink. But Jesus ends up breaking the protocol in this. He talks with his enemy. He talks with a woman who is unclean because this woman was considered to be a hussy of her day. Because what she would do is she had major moral affairs with other men that were not her husband. And she was currently living with a man that was not her husband. So she would be considered to be unclean according to the Jewish law or the religious obligations. So Jesus totally is just really messing things up right now. I mean, he is just totally going against the grain of things. And then on top of that, if Jesus would even think about drinking from the same jar that this woman was about to draw the water out of the well with, he would be considered unclean. So what does Jesus do in this moment? I realize now that Jesus wants to teach us about the moments of our journey. And for some of us, this can be a little complicated Because we have manufactured ideas about Jesus and his rules. You see, at that moment, all that manufactured stuff began to dissipate in the presence of Christ. There was no longer any room for that. Jesus begins to break all this Jewish protocol because he got to the heart of the matter, which was this woman. And when we journey with Jesus, we are going to come to a place where we have to seize the moments. And the moment to us is not going to be too comfortable. We're going to feel a little uneasy because it kind of goes against the grain of what we perceive Jesus would think. Kind of goes against our religious obligations that we hold in here instead of here. Some examples for us that we deal with religious obligations is that we feel that if everybody would attend Sunday school on a Sunday morning, then the problem with discipleship would be cured. But that's not true. Some of our religious obligations feel that if every pastor on staff would show up to every single event the church has, then this amazing revival would break out and the Spirit of God would come and sweep in and thousands would be saved. That's not really in the Word either. Or, you know, one of those other ones that if we had the right worship songs on Sunday morning and if we had the right mixture and... You know, I love the fact that we sung that, that hymn this morning. It was so great and so powerful, and those are good. But, you know, sometimes we get so hung up if we're not singing the right songs. And, and oh, you know, if we could just have this, then the presence of God would come, and, and he would actually want to stay. And, and Jesus would be able to do miracles, and people would be healed. And, yeah, that's, that's not there. And a lot of times, this is hard for us to grasp because Jesus comes in and he messes it all up. I come to think about this and I asked myself this question after I got over some of these things. I thought, how many times have our rules come between us and those God moments? I look back at all the times that I have missed out those moments that I 
chose not to seize the moment with those individuals that God wanted me to talk to because my obligations were far greater than their current need, their need for Christ. And I think about this, that our icons have separated us from kingdom mission. I looked up that word icon, and it simply means image. And I thought for a minute there that it was thinking that, you know, our icons separate us from God, our images that we have. But I began to realize that our icons can be more than just images. It can be our opinions about things. It can be our offenses about how we feel or our ideas that we have manufactured that think they need to take precedence over the word of God. So my question that I began to ask is, have our icons become idols? One of the things that emerges in this book is you're just obsessed with who God is. Yeah. I'm, and, I'm obsessed with the nature and character of this God because the religious God never healed me. Religion is where you have to get to God by the performance of certain things. It's all fear and guilt-based performance. And You're including in Christianity on that list. Well, I will. There is yeah. a Christian religion that I think God is as opposed to as any other religion, and it doesn't matter. So it's five pillars of Islam, or right. seven steps of Buddhist enlightenment, right. or one million four hundred thousand three hundred fourteen rules of Protestant evangelicalism. Right. You know, it, right. it doesn't matter. Right. You know, it's all. You're here. God is out there, mysterious and distant somewhere, probably pretty upset. And uh, because your performance sucks, you know, yeah. so you got to find your way there through this performance stuff. Jesus didn't come to set up a new religion. You know, he, he came to open up a relationship and relationship is always a violation of religion. Religion's always about power and about certainty and relationship is about mystery and, uh, and the loss of control. You know, ask any guy that got married, you know. We want certainty. We want to know that we got tomorrow taken care of. You know, we don't realize that faith grows in uncertainty, and so does relationship. So faith actually could mean you don't know something rather than you do know something. Absolutely. And you choose to trust. Yeah, because trust. We can, you know, religious people do this all the time. They use language to cover up their fear, and they think that the language is enough to compensate. So they'll say, "Well, I trust God. I trust God with this. I trust God." And then the economy shakes, right. and they freak out. It's because they've convinced themselves by the use of religious language that that's what's real. And the beauty of the economy being shaken up is that we now, in that uncertainty, can ask the real questions. Why am I freaking out? You know, what is it about this God that I don't really believe? You know, I say that he loves me all the time, but I don't really believe that. So I'm going to pray now. <laughs> Some of you may disagree with the video that I've shown because there's a lot of things that are being said about the shack. I want you to know I've studied that thoroughly through theologically as well. And uh, William Young does a very good job of what he's written. And it's very freeing. But, you know, William brings this thing about, and it made me ask this question, if religion never heals and is fear and guilt-based performance, then what did Jesus come to really set up? What did Christ really come to set up? Because, see, our temptation over time is to fix things that we feel or think need fixing. 
So the more that we get comfortable in our chairs or in our pews or whatever, and the more we begin to observe more than serve, we begin to get these concepts and we begin to look around and we begin to think that, oh, that needs fixing over there. Oh, well, you know what? Sunday school is just really not on the rise right now. God must not be moving in that church. Boy, we better fix that. Boy, gosh, you know, I, I just didn't really feel the presence of God this morning when we were singing. And, and you know, God must not be in that. We, we need to fix that. We need to really do something about that. You see, we're not called to fix things. We're called to equip people. We're called to equip the saints of God. We're called to go out and to serve those who are poor and lost and those who are wounded and hurting. I come to realize that the reality is we need more Jesus, not obligations or fixing. We need more Jesus, not obligations or fixing. I also understand that we can't manufacture Jesus out of Jesus again. He is uncreated. And it's not our job to try and fix him up, to attune to what we think he needs to be. It's like I kind of think of like a statue of Jesus, and it's like, we sometimes feel when we come to know Jesus, we each get one of those statues and it's ours to do what we want to. So we just put him here and if we think he needs this, we can put the little hat on or, you know, if it's winter time, we'll put a little winter coat on him or a little scarf. Or, and if it's summer, we'll make sure he wears shorts, you know, so he's in. We don't want him to be out of, out of style. And a lot of times I feel like we're carrying around our own manufacturer's Jesus, I manufactured Jesus's when really we just need to let him down. When we're obedient to seize the moment with Jesus, we will define who we are. We will define who we are. Something I found so amazing is when Jesus met this woman at the well, I found this so fascinating, that Jesus talked to her, and she knew that he was a Jew, but she did not know he was the Christ. There's a difference. When she encountered him, she knew right away that he was a Jew and that she was a Samaritan, but she did not have an understanding that he was the Christ. And a few months ago, my sister-in-law and her husband got married. And before the wedding, they asked us if my wife and I would actually house a few of their friends or some guests who were coming to the wedding. We said, absolutely. So they were there, and it was a Saturday morning, and my wife and I, it was the day of the wedding, my wife and I were there, and we decided to fix them breakfast. And so... We're sitting there, we're having breakfast, and I'm cleaning some of the dishes and stuff. And this one girl looks at me and she says, oh, so I hear you're a pastor. I said, yeah. She says, really? So what, what does all that entail? So I begin to talk to her a little bit. And she's like, so do you belong to like an organization or something? Or like, how does that work? And I'm like, well, I'm an Assemblies of God pastor. She's like, oh, well, what's that? And I'm like, and I ex- try to explain this whole thing. And, and I said, well, you know, you got like Methodist and you got like Presbyterian and, you know, charismatic and then there's Pentecostal and that's kind of like what we are, you know. And uh, I said, that's just it. And I'm one of those pastors. And I said, what about you? Are, are you like independent, charismatic, Pentecostal? What? She says, oh, no. I said, what do you mean? I said, do you love Jesus? Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I'm, I, I'm in love with Jesus. Really? Oh, yeah, yeah. In fact, I, I travel the world and I actually spend time helping the poor and I write about the poor and about how Jesus is making a difference in their lives. And she said, I, I love Jesus. I love Jesus' teachings and I love to follow Jesus. And I said, so you're not like in a denomination or anything? Or is this, and she says, yeah, no, I don't have time for that. And all of a sudden, all of a sudden, I had this epiphany. 
doing dishes. I had this epiphany. (laughs) And I thought to myself, oh my goodness, because I realized this. We're not defined by how Catholic, how Pentecostal, how charismatic, how Methodist, how Baptist we are. We are defined by Jesus Christ. If you're dealing with offense right now, I want to highly recommend that you pick up the book by John Bevere called Bait of Satan. Let's pick up in verse 9. Jesus is at the well with the woman, and the woman was surprised, for Jews refused to have anything to do with Samaritans. She said to Jesus, you are a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking me for a drink? Jesus replied, if you only knew the gift God has for you and who you are speaking to, you would ask me. And I would give you living water. But sir, you don't have a rope or a bucket, she said, and this well is very deep. Where would you get this living water? And besides, do you think you're greater than our ancestor Jacob who gave us this well? How can you offer better water than he and his sons and his animals enjoy? Now, I don't know if you caught the sarcasm of the Samaritan woman here, but she basically says, oh, okay. Listen up, mister. It just so happens we're the dirt under your sandals until you need something here. And now all of a sudden, our water's good. My service is good. My jar to drink from is clean enough. That's basically what she was saying. And I love this because Jesus just totally bypasses her bitterness. He overlooks it. He just steps right over it. And he reminds us, he reminds us that as a rabbi, as a savior to the world, the real Jesus Christ reminds us that he came to give a gift to everyone and not just the keepers of our own laws and rules. You see, our manufactured Jesus will tell us that it's okay to have agendas. Our manufactured Jesus will tell us that it's okay to hold your offenses. Our manufactured Jesus tells us that it's okay. When you become a follower of Jesus, you get entitlements. But you see, the real Jesus Christ, he tells us that we don't have a right to be offended. The real Jesus Christ tells us to be present in the conversation and to seize the moment instead of trying to blurt out everything on your heart and mind at the moment and then just discontinue in your mind and not listen to what they're saying. The real Jesus Christ tells us that he comes to love everybody regardless of who they are and that we don't have entitlements. You see, being a follower of Jesus... And belonging to a community of faith does not give us entitlements. Well, I give more in my offering. I should be entitled to hearing from the pastor immediately. Well, I I give a little extra besides my normal 10% of tithe, so I should be a leader in the church. See, that doesn't bring us entitlements. Because, see, let me understand this, and and I got to understand this, and I'm working this through, but I want to encourage you with this. When we profess with our mouth and we believe in our heart and we declare that Jesus Christ is Lord of our lives, we lose our rights to independence. Because we now say, 
I am in such need of you, Jesus, that I can no longer operate on my own, but I must depend fully on you. But see, the problem is, is we grab our manufactured Jesus, we go to church. This is my Jesus, the Jesus that I love, the Jesus that loves me. And we take that Jesus with us everywhere and we feel that we're entitled and we feel that we have rights and our independence is there, but we don't have that anymore. We were stripped of that. Look with me at verse 13. Jesus replies, he continues on with this conversation, anyone who drinks this water will soon become thirsty, but those who drink the water I give will never be thirsty again. It becomes a fresh bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. Please, sir, the woman said, give me this water. Then I will never be thirsty again, and I won't have to come here to get water. Jesus' second reply here is pretty awesome because he totally talks about the difference between the material water and the spiritual water. The woman was caught up in other areas where Jesus was just totally bypassing the moment. And Jesus is saying to her, listen, honey, here's the deal. All that manufactured stuff, all those religious obligations in essence that you have been holding on to are never going to fill the void that you have. But I tell you what, the living water that I have will never run out. The way that you come and you come to follow me, that will never grow dry. And so this woman is intrigued. And I began to realize this, that material water will not only relieve the current thirst, will only relieve the current thirst, but spiritual water will extinguish the inner thirst forever. And for followers of Jesus, we have to come to grips that we have something awesome to offer. And that's not being prideful. It's just a true fact that when we accept Christ, we have something awesome to offer others. But over time, we forget about that. We lose our focus and we forget that it's bigger than us. It's bigger than us in those moments. It's bigger than our ideas. It's bigger than our opinions. It's bigger than our offenses. It's Jesus. And this brought me to another question that I had to ask. Who do we define ourselves as? Who do we define ourselves as? And I got to thinking about this, that when I talk to people, I hear the word a lot, Pentecostal. I'm Pentecostal. Well, you know, I grew up in this church, and I'm Pentecostal. This is a Pentecostal church. And I know I'm stepping on some toes, but you know what? Jesus is moving in here, so I'm going to make the room. But we get in this thing that I say, well, who are you? Well, I'm Pentecostal. I'm a Pentecostal believer. I got the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, you got to understand, the power of the Holy Spirit is important. Pentecost was an event in the Bible, not a lifestyle. But here's the whole thing about this. If we are defined as Pentecostals, then what we are defined as is what we have to offer. So if we are defined by a feel-good moment and the hair standing up on the back of our necks for a few moments, that's all we have to offer a world for change. But if we have to offer Jesus Christ, the fullness of Christ, then we will see the world changed. If we are defined by Christ. See, when Jesus and the woman at the well met each other, Jesus didn't come out and say, well, here's the deal, princess, I'm charismatic. This is what we do. Let me just show you a couple moves, a couple things, you know. That's what we do. That's how we build this church, toots. 
Now, Jesus didn't do that. He introduced himself and basically says, I'm the Christ. And what I got, you'll never thirst again. See, according to the manufactured laws of man, the Samaritan woman had defined who she was and who Jesus was. She was a social misfit. He was a prominent Jew. But when Jesus responded, he said, listen, all you have to offer right now is these religious obligations, laws, and rules. But what I have to offer you is freedom. Freedom from all those things. Jesus is telling the church to stop acting like a follower of Jesus and live like one. You know, it's interesting because I was preparing for this message and somebody asked me and said, well, isn't that the same thing? So no, it's not. Because see, if I was to go out and plant an apple tree today, and in a few years, I would look to harvest grapes from it. No, I'm looking to harvest apples. And a lot of times it's easy for us to get caught up and we use all the cool language of being a follower of Jesus and we, you know, we like to talk it up and, oh yeah, we do this and we do that and we do this, but the reality is we don't. We create a really great argument, but we don't know what we're talking about. You see, the body of Christ needs to stop acting like a follower of Jesus and live like one. Jesus calls us to live these things out. That means it takes action. And the more that Jesus works this in me, the more I realize how guilty I was so much of just talking the talk and being able to create a fantastic argument and throw all those Jesus words in there and all those cool things that us Pentecostals do. And I I wouldn't have a clue because I didn't even live it out. I wasn't serving the poor. I wasn't taking care of the disenfranchised. I didn't give a hoot about the lost. I didn't care who was wounded because I had an agenda. I had other things to accomplish for the kingdom. Look at me with verse 16. Jesus tells her, he says, go and get your husband, he told her. I don't have a husband, the woman replied. Jesus said, you're right. You don't have a husband for you have five husbands and you aren't even married to the man you're living with now. You certainly spoke the truth. God is very funny. I think he's actually hilarious. And I'm not disrespecting God. It's just because I've grown to understand this portion of his nature, that God is an enjoying God and he wants us to enjoy him. But I think it's so funny because the character of God is lived out through Christ in this moment because Jesus basically sets her up. He's like, okay, honey, go down the road, go back to the house, whatever you're going to do, and go get your husband. Now, Jesus knows the woman does not have a one husband. He tells her he has five. She has five. I think this is genius because, one, it was proper. Two, it was strategic. The reason it was proper was because Jesus was looking at that time, and any time that a woman and a man were alone in a public setting that were not married, that was considered to be a no-no. So Jesus is going to be proper and tell her to go get her husband. But he's strategic at the same time because he sets her up. And he basically says, here's the deal, honey. You can't be free until you admit that you need to be free in this moment. And so she ends up confessing to him that she has five husbands. And the current one at home is not her husband. I love this because living as a follower of Jesus will always be messy. And we have to come to grips with that. 
that it is going to be very messy being a follower of Jesus. You know, I, I realized this, that when Jesus was sitting there talking to her, he ended up lifting the veil of her past and her current circumstances right up in front of her. And that was so messy. At that moment, Jesus could have said, mm, peace, I'm checking out. This is too much for me to handle right now. But he invests himself into the moment and he defines who he is to her. And you see, it shouldn't be the messiness that intimidates us, but it should be the love that God has for us that intimidates us. We shouldn't be intimidated by the messiness that everyone deals with because understand this, we're all journeying through this together and we still all have a lot to clean out of our own lives. I still deal with areas of my life that need to be cleaned out because I'm still messy, but God is working in me. But we shouldn't be intimidated by the fact that individuals are messy. We should be intimidated because of God's love. What is intimidating about God's love is that he keeps giving it, even when we don't deserve it. Who is this guy? To us, that is crazy that Jesus would keep giving us love over and over and over again. If we really get that concept, that is very intimidating because this is somebody who is pursuing us continuously and not giving up. In order for us to melt away our manufactured Jesus, we need to enjoy the journey. Now, growing up, my parents traveled a lot. We'd travel to Kentucky, to Florida, to Michigan. Sometimes we'd do like a two-week tour um, of vacation. And I hated it because I realized that journeying together and traveling together takes two main elements, time and relationship. I didn't have a good relationship with my parents in the first place. So that was the number one, that I didn't like to travel with them. The second problem was the timing issue because it took too much time to go on vacation with my family. And that bit into my own personal time, which was very inconvenient for me. <laughs> How selfish. <laughs> and God eventually worked that out of me. And, you know, my family and I love each other very much. But as I reflect back, I realize that I missed out on a lot. I never enjoyed the moment with my parents. I never really enjoyed vacation. I missed out on a lot of things that we did together. And it, like I had to go back and I had to rake, take a rake over those coals and, and kind of let the air get into those ambers to begin to flame up again because I lost all that. See, following Jesus takes a lot of time and a lot of relationship. And this is another question that popped into my mind because if it takes a lot of time and a lot of relationship with those that Jesus loves, then why do we have so much time to complain about the local community of Christ and shop for other churches? I realize that too much time and energy has been put into manufacturing our own needs instead of investing time into the needs of those who need it and those who are really poor and lost and in need of things instead of serving others in the midst of the journey and enjoying it. Now, in verse 19, which is not on your notes through 33, everything develops from here and it's coming to a point. The disciples come back 
They see Jesus alone with this woman. They're wondering what's going on. Jesus is in the midst of this conversation with the Samaritan woman, and he's basically telling her that here's the deal. The reason I came is so that all of us could come together, that we would not be separated, but all of us would come together, that you would worship the Father, and that we would have a humility and a purity about us, and that we don't have to put up walls and go to our own separate places and do all these things because of disagreements. But he's saying, we're all going to come together, and this is what's going to happen. So we pick up in verse 34, and this is what it says. Then Jesus explained, he's talking with his disciples. My nourishment comes from doing the will of God who sent me and from finishing his work. You know the saying, four months between planting and harvest, but I say, wake up and look around. The fields are already ripe for harvest. The harvesters are paid good wages, and the fruit they harvest is people brought to eternal life. What joy awaits both the planter and the harvester alike. You know the saying, one plants, another harvests. And it's true. I sent you to harvest where you didn't plant. Others had already done the work, and you know you will get to gather the harvest. See, Jesus has to reiterate to the disciples what's going on. You see, the disciples come in, and they're all in a frantic, they're all panicked, because first of all, Jesus is talking with a woman. Second of all, he's talking with a Samaritan, the enemy. And and he's about to possibly drink some water, or he's currently drinking water, which means he's unclean now. Then on top of that, they're worried about the welfare of him, because after a day's journey, he must be thirsty, and he must be hungry. And Jesus explains to them, no, boys, here's the deal. There's more to it than this. There's more to it than this right now. And see, they were a little concerned about the violation of customs. But he's saying to them right here, he says, no, guys, don't miss the big picture in this moment. Look at what I'm doing. And see, sometimes we miss the big picture. And I ask myself this question, that even if the disciples miss the big picture... Are we missing the big picture because of what we have ever known? They were waiting for Jesus to do something according to their desires because they thought with Jesus coming, he would revamp the whole Roman Empire according to what they thought. But Jesus came with something fresh and new because Jesus is not into manufactured products. He tried to tell tell his disciples that the satisfaction that he gains is from completing the will of the Father. The will of the Father. He was saying that completing God's work, completing my daddy's work is far greater than these things right here, far greater than trying to accomplish these obligations and to to cross your T's and to dot your I's. This is far greater than that right now. It sounds like he's putting a whole new order to things, but not really. Because I thought, wow, Jesus is really coming and messing things up and turning things upside down. It's a whole new order of things, but not really. He was just returning to what had been lost through the process of manufacturing over the years. You see, the joy of the Lord is in the harvest, Jesus says. And the joy of the Lord comes from fulfilling the will of the Father. So another question I ask myself and I ask you, where does our joy flow from as a community of faith? Does our joy flow from the fact that we have crosses that we're able to see on a Sunday morning and the dove is totally visible? Does our joy flow from the fact that our songs are all right in order and we worship Jesus? 
Does our joy flow from fulfilling the obligations that we put on each other and then we throw Jesus in the mix and say, do this because that's what Jesus would want? Or does our joy flow from the purity of the heart of the Father and where we make no other argument because we just simply say, that's where God is, that's where I need to be, and I'm not going to allow anything else to stop me. Look at verse 39. Many Samaritans from the village believed in Jesus because the woman had said, he told me everything I had ever known. When they came out to see him, they begged him to stay in their village. So he stayed for two days long enough for many more to hear his message and believe. See, Jesus presents a message of transformation. Basically what happens is Jesus stayed to enjoy the journey. Jesus at that moment could have said, hey, my work here is done. Peace out, later, see ya. I gotta move on to the next city. But he enjoyed the journey at that moment and he stayed two extra days where many came to know him. And his message was transformational. And the question that I ask us is what are we bringing to those that don't know Jesus? Is it transforming? Or is it creating disunity in their eyes? Jesus' message will always trump our opinions and personal agendas. And if this is the case, it's time that we enjoy the journey ahead of us as followers of Christ. The life and the words of Jesus are not an explanation for us on how to live, but an invitation to real life. All he is asking of the New Testament church is to leave our manufactured idols and to make room for the purity of the real Jesus Christ. Would you stand with me, please? I'm just going to ask that you would take a posture of receiving, and for some of you, that could be putting your hands out or closing your eyes and concentrating. But I want to pray over you. I want to pray a blessing over you But I also want to pray that the reality of this message sits deep in your heart and that you allow Jesus to come face to face with that and deal with it in proper time. So Father, right now, I thank you for each and every one who is here, even those who had planned to come today but were not able to make it. I pray, Lord, that a blessing would rest upon each and every single individual in this place. I pray, God, that you would meet them right where they're at, regardless of what they're dealing with now. I pray that they would seize the moment wherever they are, that they would have no problems defining who they are in Christ, and that they would take time to enjoy the journey with those that they encounter. I also pray, God, that the truth of this message, the Word of God, would sit deep into their hearts. And Father, even though there will be times we are tempted to wrestle against it and to overcome it, I pray that the Holy Spirit would win. Move our hearts to a greater place of understanding of this, Lord, and that we would be carriers of this message. In the mighty name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.
You're dismissed.